crossed again in the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and come up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Halitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was of 12, year, or 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Thanks, Matt. It is good to be here today. Um, this is our first time in Halifax this week. And uh, so to you who this is your city, thank you for hosting us. Uh, and it is a joy to be in this church this morning. Um, part of my job, I get to exp uh, visit a lot of churches and just always thankful that in so many cities across North America and around the world, there are Christians who care about the gospel and want to live it out. They want to love their neighbors. They want to love God. So thank you for for this space, for, for gathering each week, for being the church here in Halifax. Um, I work with Bethany Kids, so I'm excited to tell you a little bit about that work before we get into our scripture. And um, it is an incredible ministry. I, I did not start it. It does not bear my name. I can't take credit for all the incredible things they do, but I get the joy to uh, tell their story and share a little bit about what they've been doing the last 20 years. So first and foremost, what I would say is we train missionary surgeons. Uh, rather than sending missionaries across the world, as we have often done as a church for centuries, uh, at Bethany Kids, we actually train surgeons who are uh, local to the countries in which they serve. And we work across Africa. So the surgeons that we train are Africans. 
We train them both as uh, part of our pediatric fellowship, so they're trained uh, medically, but they're also trained as missionaries. So there's this gospel component, this scripture, so that all of the people who graduate from our program, um, they not only uh, are competent physicians, they know how to heal physically, but they are also people who care about the scriptures and want to heal people and transform lives at a spiritual level. So we're excited that every year we get to see some of these folks graduate and serve across the continent of Africa, to the point that now we serve in seven different countries, led in each of those countries by one of the former students who were part of our fellowship. Now, of course, as things grow, as, as we as an organization grow and these surgeons return home, we start to face different challenges that, um, that we need to find ways through. So as a surgeon gets back to their home country and they work in a hospital, frequently we'll find that that hospital is just not equipped or prepared to pay a fair salary to these surgeons. So every year we ensure that the surgeons that we've trained get fair salaries and we provide for them. Um, they are not surgeons who are able to come around North America and sort of do the missionary circuit and, and, and preach and share. They are in surgery, they're doing work. So I get to tell their story on their behalf so that they can serve at the front lines. And so as we train those surgeons, we also provide the pediatric care. And we do that uh, in those seven countries through those surgeons. And that means every year we provide about 3,000 surgeries to kids who otherwise would have significant challenges in life or otherwise would not survive. And we get to treat them, we get to care for them, and we get to do that in a way that is Christ-centered. Everything we do is, is centered on this notion that Jesus calls us to love him and love others. So every year, 3,000 kids get access to care. And that care goes beyond the surgery room as we've trained these surgeons, as we provide for the surgeon's salary, as we, in many cases, pay for the children themselves. If they cannot afford to go to the hospital, we'll pay the bills for them. And then knowing that we need more than good surgery to be healthy, we provide, we'll say, more holistic care. That includes everything from uh, rehabilitation services with physiotherapy, occupational therapy. That includes wheelchairs. That also includes chaplains and spiritual formation for these families. Because in many cases, when a family comes to us, they're having about the worst day they've ever had, right? They found out something about their child or they've discovered something that is deeply and profoundly affecting their family. And so we get to walk with them with our chaplains and ensure that those families who come to our hospitals have a church home to go back to in their home village so that uh, not only are they healed physically, but there's a whole spiritual, supernatural transformation in their life. So that is the work that I get to be involved in. in I am not a, I'm a, not a surgeon. I get to work alongside these surgeons to help tell their story. So as we look at the scripture today, uh, I hope that you'll see uh, some of that. It's a bias. I recognize you're going to hear my bias coming through about this ministry being profoundly important, and I would certainly invite you to participate in it. So as we read this scripture about a healing I'm sure you'll see uh, the connections that, you know, thousands of years ago and still today we have the opportunity to be a people of healing. So the passage we're looking at, Matt read it for us, is, is Mark 5, and I'm also going to have the scripture on the screen. I happen to have chosen a slightly different translation for you, um, and that was just, just happened. I sent in the, the, the pages before I knew what translation you're using. So my apologies if it's not the one that matches your Bible in the pew. But what I would say is it's a great opportunity for us to listen with fresh ears, 
and, and listen to the story. Now, this story appears in a number of different Gospels. It's not just in this Gospel. This story appears at least in three different places. But I've chosen it from this passage, from the book of Mark, because typically, if you've read a lot of Scripture, Mark is usually the shortest. Usually, he provides the least amount of detail. Usually, he rushes the story and gets to the punchline very quickly. But in this case, his is one of the longest stories. He recounts some of the most detail, and some of the detail that he's chosen to leave into the story, I think, is really important for us to understand the life of the people involved here. So I will read a couple of lines, and we'll talk about, I think, how it might apply to us or, or what it might mean to us. So this is the beginning uh, of this chapter, or, or the verses that we're looking at. It says this, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. It is always incredible to see how Jesus responds to the need of the people before him. And, and so frequently in scripture, we see just that, that someone will, will come to Jesus and ask for healing. And as an organization that provides physical healing, again, like in the numbers of the thousands every year, even when we look at scripture, we see many, many people who were healed. And so one of the things that I always think is interesting, like why did Mark record these stories of healing? What is significant or different about these stories of healing today uh, that he's slowed down the narrative? He's given us names, this, this um, synagogue leader, Jairus. He, we've got names and we've got details of the family. To me, that raises a lot of uh, questions of why. What does it matter? What exactly is maybe Mark trying to teach us about Jesus, about who he is, and, and, and who we are to be as we follow him? A few things that catch my attention with this passage, first of all, is this is a religious leader. And if you've been in church for a good many years, you'll often remember that Jesus, when he talks to religious leaders, sometimes it feels a little uh, combative. You know, a religious leader will come and be like, Jesus, you said this, but, you know, I see. there's often this quizzing, this testing, this maybe this antagonistic approach between a religious leader and Jesus. And here we see something totally different. We see a religious leader, a person of, of significant privilege, and they come to Jesus begging for their child's life, saying, my child is unwell. Would you please come? And, and we get this image of this in the scripture of, of this man, this holy person in the temple, falling onto the floor, a prostrate before Jesus. What a different posture we see in this religious leader versus the many other religious leaders we've heard in the stories. Right? As they come before Jesus, not to question him, not to quiz or trick Jesus, but in this case, to come and say, my daughter is sick. And, and for those of you who have had kids or you've worked with children, the, the weight that that must have been on this man's shoulder, the fear for his child's life. Uh, no, no parent wants to outlive their own kid. And this, this father was worried for his child's safety, their well-being. And so he comes in profound faith and desperation to the foot of Jesus. And fortunately, Jesus offers to go with him. And so immediately we think this is a great story. And, you know, if, if it was just a short version, it just ends right there. Jesus comes and, and he saves the baby. But there, there's this interlude in the story, and there's this pause, because as Jesus begins to follow this man to, to heal his daughter, as Jesus begins to, to answer his plea, 
He begins to move, and then you remember there's this crowd all around him. In the initial line, so the crowd was pressing up against Jesus. So we get to this next line in, this, in the passage, and if you continue reading, uh, it says this, A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she had been freed from her suffering. What an incredible moment. This, this person's come before Jesus in a similar posture. She, in this case, we get the same language where she's sort of falling at the feet of Jesus. But in this case, it wasn't to, to adore him or to show reverence. But she's sort of sneaking up on him in the crowd to touch his cloak. And you, you sort of scratch your head and say, well, why is that? And, and you can continue reading. It says, at once Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Now, this is kind of peculiar. Jesus knows everything. Of course, he knew who touched him. And his disciples are scratching their heads saying, Jesus, there's like a hundred people here. There's a thousand people. Why on earth would you? Everyone's touching your cloak. Like it is like a shopping mall at Christmas or is a, a busy place at a festival. It is busy. Of course, someone's bumping into your shoulders, Jesus. Like kind of get over it, right? Like it's not a big deal. But Jesus knew that something important was happening here and he wanted to pause and, and he wanted to acknowledge the person who had touched him. Remember, this is a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had been bleeding for 12 years. She had been sick. And uh, this is hard for most of us to imagine what that would have been like to, to, for, for 12 years to be bleeding. Uh, to, if, uh, as a, perhaps as some of the women in the room, you know, for a couple of days, maybe you're bleeding. Uh, maybe after pregnancy, bleeding. Uh, this woman is sort of on her period for 12 years, hemorrhaging. Blood is coming out. There's no, there's no pads. There's no modern sanitary napkins. She's using rags. She's using cloth. For 12 years. Now remember for a moment, because 12 years feels like it's not that long, but where were you 12 years ago, right? That's a, that's a while. 20, or 2010? Had you heard about the pandemic or COVID-19 or were you wearing masks to church or were you worried about air, uh, a global recession? Well, maybe the other global recession, but there was, there was a different word 12 years ago. Some of the people who were in this church were downstairs. They didn't exist 12 years ago. 12 years is a long time. And for 12 years, day after day, this woman bled. So physically, what a burden to carry that this woman had. But it's more than just that. And, and this helps us understand why she snuck up on Jesus. Because it is more than just that she was bleeding. But she was also would have been socially ostracized for that bleeding. She would have been considered unclean by the religious officials. That same man who came to see Jesus moments ago in the story would have been one of the many people who would have said, you, you can't come into to the synagogue. You can't come here. You're unclean. This isn't safe. No one was supposed to touch her. She was unclean. If you touched her, you would have, been, you would have had to go and sort of do some ceremony. She was unclean. She was bleeding. So she was socially ostracized. She was set apart from society for 12 years. 
The heavy burden that this woman would have been carrying is something that most of us, perhaps not all of us, but most of us would have a hard time understanding. That level of isolation, that level of despair to come and say, I've got, what else have I got to lose? But to reach out to this healer and find healing. And that would have been risky. Because by, by the laws of that time, not only was she potentially infecting the whole crowd, but she was infecting the healer himself, right? Because anyone who touches her was said to be unclean. And yet there she was in the crowd reaching out to Jesus, trying to reach to Jesus to find the, the healing that she was so longed after. And some of the, the, the lines that are in this passage that I think stand out, and, and what I would say is that they're not in, you know, uh, uh, Luke and Matthew, some of the other places. Uh, what we see here is that uh, she spent all of her money and all she had, and she only grew worse. Now, as someone who works for medical charity, I can say that this is something that's common around the world. The, the story that this woman has is sadly very common. We see people who come to our ministry, who come to our hospitals. They've spent all they have trying to get healing from people who are not qualified to provide that healing. From, from people who give advice, maybe not great advice. I mean, we have this problem here in North America. A lot of folks dish out medical advice. They're not medical people, right? You've, you've, you've experienced this maybe. Oh, I know exactly what's wrong with you. You think, really? You've done the x-rays. Friends and family, maybe well-meaning. This woman had spent all she had trying to find healing. There's this desperation. She was socially ostracized, which again is something we sadly continue to see. In our society here in North America, we don't have the same... Uh, culture around, you know, unclean versus clean, although you can imagine there's still part of it in different ways. And if you've ever been the sick person, you are well aware that sometimes people feel a little hesitant to come visit. What if you get it on me? What if I get sick too? And some of that can, can add layers with religion and culture. You can have these layers of, of shame that is pressed upon someone. And yet this woman comes to Jesus. And what does she find in Jesus? She finds a healing touch. Jesus provides for her. And then there's a few things that are interesting in terms of what Jesus does here. Because he refers to her as his daughter. As his daughter. Now, you've already heard that line somewhere in this passage, right? Where do we hear daughter already? Jairus' daughter. The interesting thing, as far as I know, as far as I've looked at it, at least in the book of Mark, no one else is called the daughter of Jesus anywhere else in the book of Mark. And if I'm wrong, please afterwards correct me. But I don't think there's anyone else anywhere in the book of Mark where a woman is called daughter by Jesus. You are my daughter. Which, again, when you see something different happen in a story that isn't anywhere else in Mark, it starts to sort of lift the story off the page a little bit and say, we should be paying attention. Jesus says, you are my daughter. To the, to the world around that said, I don't know this sick woman. I can't touch her. I won't go near her. She can stay in her own place. In that context, Jesus looks at this broken woman and says, you are my daughter. The other language that I think is very interesting that, that we see in this uh, passage here is it describes the woman, of course, as bleeding, and this is another thing that is rarely used in the book of Mark in terms of how many people are described as bleeding. I bet you can guess the other one. Who else is described as bleeding in the book of Mark? Jesus. 
And it talks about her suffering. And, and when we look at sort of the roots of some of these words, we get that the, the, the same word as the scourging. Who's been scourged in the book of Mark? Jesus. We are seeing Mark use words about this random, unnamed woman who was, who was not even welcome in society. We see words used by Mark here that elevate her off the page to say, this is someone special. This is my daughter. This is my family. And if you've ever been sick and you've ever been ignored, you know that that is significant. When Bethany Kids started some 20 years ago, and you were, as you pointed out, the name began as the Bethany Crippled Children's Center. And then it was called Bethany Kids for a lot of obvious reasons. And one of the questions, of course, is why on earth was it called Bethany? Now, you might know your scriptures and say, well, that's the place of healing. And that's partially correct. But actually, the name Bethany was the, the gentleman, the surgeon who founded Bethany Kids. That was his own daughter's name. And in his mind, what he thought is every time I serve a patient before me, I need to treat them as though they were my own daughter. I need to see that they are precious. They are made in God's image. And when you serve in this capacity, you see a lot of people who are very broken. People who come to you who maybe they don't have the, the ability to sort of control all of their, their bladder. And so they're maybe soaked in their own bodily fluids. And in the rest of society, you might think, oh, that's kind of gross. Why is he even talking about that in church? That's disgusting. These are the kind of people who have been sometimes forced out of church. And yet the surgeons who started Bethany Kids, these people, they matter and they're my own daughter. I'm going to treat them with that love and respect. I think of uh, another place in scripture where, where you think about how do I relate to people who are broken, who are, who are different than me, who are bleeding for 12 years or who are soaked in their own bodily fluids. And I remember coming across a book from some pastor in Toronto, and he was working with those people who are living on the streets. And he said, for him, it was important to remember that it wasn't as if he was sort of Jesus coming to these broken people. Because if you put that in your head, you very quickly think that you're the one on the golden throne, and these smelly folks who stink like alcohol are some kind of below you. And he said instead, he remembers that when he goes into the streets and he serves the person in front of him, despite the, the stench of alcohol on the breath or the urine on the clothes, he says that when I look at this person, I look at them as though they're Jesus himself. As that when he was hungry, we fed him. When he was naked, we clothed him. You know that passage I'm talking about, perhaps, where when the way that we serve others is exactly how we ought to serve Jesus. And so when you see this broken child, you, you don't just say, well, that smells bad. We are not welcome in this space. You say, this is my daughter. This is my family. You might roll out the red carpet and say, the king is here. We're here to serve this beautiful child made in God's image. So I wanted to share with you a story of someone in our organization who, who this thing happened to her. And her name is Francesca. And, and this is Francesca on the screen. And she, she's now an employee with Bethany Kids. She serves with Bethany Kids. And so if you just take a snapshot of today, you think that this is a presentation on human resources. And I'm just trying to tell you about our team. But I want to tell you her story. Because she was one of the many thousands of children who we treated as a patient. She came to Bethany Kids many years ago, but before that, she, she was born with spina bifida. And she was born in, in a region of the world that looked upon that medical condition as a spiritual curse. And the solution to a spiritual curse was to remove the child from this planet, 
if you get my meaning. The solution was to poison her. That was the family's plan to kill this beautiful lady. That was the plan, and it didn't work. She survived anyways, and so she grew up into her teenage years still with this condition, this disability that prevented her from interacting with the rest of society. And in fact, she, she recalls at one point there's a family wedding that every single person in the family was going to the wedding, and she wasn't invited because she wasn't clean. And she said herself she, she knew she smelt like urine because she didn't know how to control her bladder. She didn't have the medical resources to care for herself. And just like the woman in the story, everyone she spoke to gave her lousy advice, right? We give this advice all the time. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're the problem. Who sinned, this person or their parent? But the people of Bethany Kids, the founder, the person who started this ministry many years ago, when they met Francesca, they cared for her medical needs. And because they did that, her whole life was transformed to the point that not only did she become a Christian and an evangelist, but so did her family become elders in the church. Her whole family was transformed her naturally in terms of medical care, but also supernaturally. And my belief is that when a ministry like this one actually treats the people around us the way Jesus does, lifts them up and allows the, the healing to come from a place of love, that that is when the world can get transformed. But of course that comes at a cost because this story, you remember we started with a different story. We started with Jairus and then we had this in, interaction with a random woman who we don't even know her name. And you think, well, whatever happened to the other girl that we're going to see? Well, the story continues. And you'll see, uh, while this incredible thing was happening, it says this, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not, uh, so at, at that point, we'll pause for a moment, just believe. Do you think, like, really, Jesus? Like, I just saw you heal this person. I cannot begin to imagine what Jairus is feeling. I'll say that. I, I don't want to imply too many things, but I can tell you how I would have been feeling. If I had come to, the Je come to Jesus, come to the healer, I had bowed before him, said, Jesus, you're the great healer, and he says, I'm coming, I'm with you, and he's on his way. And en route, my kid dies. I wouldn't have been happy, I'll be honest. Selfishly, I would have been like, this one was not even clean. Right? I mean, that was the law. That was religious law. You shouldn't have even touched that woman. We should have gone straight to my home, care for my daughter, and then maybe later you take care of these other people. And you hear in that language reflections of some of the ways that we behave as a church. God, please first heal me and my family. And if you've got time, would you mind taking care of the rest of the world? And that sounds terrible, but look at the way we behave sometimes. That's exactly how we live. We invest so much, so heartily in our prayer life, in our finances, in our own personal well-being and our families. And when I think of the language Jesus uses or the language of, of the start of Bethany Kids, it was, this is also my daughter. This is my daughter. This is family. The story continues while, on, the, on the next slide here, you'll see it. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion. And with people crying and wailing loudly, he went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. 
but they laughed at him. They laughed at him as Jesus said that. And the story continues. It says this, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went in where the child was and he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. As this, or at this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is an incredible story. Two stories combined, two mirror images, this woman, this child. Interestingly, with the woman, he decided to pause and, and do something public so the whole community could say, this woman is healed now. You don't have to keep her on the margins. She mattered. She's my daughter. And then with the religious leader, what does he say? No one come in. We're going to do this privately. Publicly and privately, Jesus is healing people. And in this case, as he cares for this daughter, remember, not only was the woman unclean, but dead people are considered unclean. And what does, what does he do? Immediately, it goes up to the daughter and he, he touches her. Jesus is breaking down all sorts of social barriers as he serves the people around him. And he serves Jairus' daughter. And for a moment, if I was Jairus, I would have been thinking, this was a heavy sacrifice to pay that I lost my daughter so that this woman could be well. And, and you'd like to theologically think that all people are equal, but you can feel the weight of that, can't you? And, and for a moment, Jairus lost his daughter and thought, what a sacrifice, what a burden I have carried for the sake of someone else. But Jesus comes through for him. And Jesus heals his daughter as well. His daughter... and. There's an interesting connection, of course. I'm not one of these folks who obsesses over numbers and scriptures, and I'm not saying that we're predicting the future here. I'm not that sort of preacher. But there's a number that's repeated here a couple times. What's the number? Twelve. So 12 years, the woman was bleeding. Twelve years, the kid's been alive. Where else do you see 12 in scripture? Twelve disciples. So the New Testament is framed around the story of 12 disciples. The Old Testament's framed around the story of uh, 12 tribes. So you've got the old and the new, both are being healed. In this story, you have the woman who was excluded from religious society, who had been abandoned. You might even say this is like the New Testament. She was still welcome at the table. The, the love that Jesus had for her as her daughter, she was brought healing. And he didn't abandon the others either. He took care of the, the, the woman or the girl who was uh, the daughter of the temple leader. Jesus shows up in people's lives, and what happens? People are healed. And the way he heals them is, as I see it, and in his entire ministry, is through this profound sense of loving others. He is so profoundly loving those people that he shows up in their lives. He's so profoundly loved you that he dies on a cross. This is the kind of Jesus we serve, a God of love. That is the word that is most Commonly describing God, most precisely defining Jesus, is that Jesus is love. And that love heals people. And when we read this story, there's, there's a few things that I think we can always take away. I don't know your life and the specifics of your life to know how this is applied entirely. But I would say this, we can learn from this scripture the character of God, that God loves people. Jesus loves you. He loves those who are in the church, like the, the, the little girl who is in the temple or in the synagogue. He also loves those who have been excluded, the woman who wasn't even allowed in the front door. God loves those people, and he's willing to show up and provide healing so that their lives would be transformed. This loving, healing pattern is one that you see throughout the scriptures. 
So we can learn a lot about Jesus. And, and you could come to church every week, and every week you could say, wow, Jesus is good. And to be clear, you should do that. That's a good thing to do. Every week you can come and say, Jesus is good. God is good, and he loves us. And if we just did that and said, that doesn't actually change my life, we're missing half of it, right? When, when Jesus was called to, uh, to say what is the most important thing, it was love God and, what's the other bit? Love others. So when I read a passage like this, I don't just see the character of God, but I see what the character of the church should be. We, as we reflect Jesus, should be a people just like that who love others, who provide healing for others. Now, again, I recognize as a person who works for Bethany Kids, I'm a little biased. And I would say that I think that the folks at Bethany Kids do this brilliantly. They do it. It's amazing. And I would say to you, if you want a takeaway, you want something, for those of you who want very specific applications from Scripture, donate your money to Bethany Kids. That would be a very specific thing you could do. Right? And I'll, I'll be very transparent about that. We could use the help so that we could transform more lives like Francesca. But even more broadly, what I would say is whatever you do, how, whatever you take away from this passage, if we are excited by Jesus being a, a loving, healing God, and we say we want to follow that Jesus, then might I suggest to you to do exactly the same thing to your neighbor. Be a loving and healing neighbor so that they might see the glory, the goodness, and the love of Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to have them play a song for us to, to take time to reflect on the scriptures. Not just on my words. This isn't just a time to sort of text Bethany kids your money. But what I would say is a time to consider the words of the scripture. And maybe I've misinterpreted something. And that's okay. I, I'm not God. But we look at the scripture and we see his story unveiled. And I encourage you to look at that story as I read it and as Matt read it. And to see what of this story transforms your understanding of God. And precisely for today, what needs to transform in your life as you walk out this back door and as you leave church. Let me pray with you if you would. Jesus, we thank you that in all things, in all ways, you were here before us. You are the, the centerpiece of creation, the cornerstone of this church. And we come before you humbly. 2,000 years after some of these stories were written down and took place in, in a country that wasn't even named. And we come before you and we say that you are the center of all we do. That as we serve, whether it be by donating to something like Bethany Kids, by giving our money so that other people might live another day, or whether it be caring for the people of this city through soup kitchens and food banks, whatever it is, Jesus, I pray that you would continue to transform our hearts so that we would never look down on our neighbor, but look to them with the, to see the same stamp that they are a son and daughter of you. Help us as we bring healing to this world to do so with a deep and profound, compassionate love, a love that we see so perfectly mirrored, so perfectly defined in your actions on the cross. Jesus, we pray in all things, you be the center.